Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Week's of classic film from 1998 film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight yes Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident self-assured style Lex Luthor in Superman what is it about Gene Hackman that uh... his performance it's off the charts but still in reality fiendishly gifted 1981 Sam Raimi Opus The Evil Dead oh yes fine choice Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have charade oh directed by Stanley Donnan it's a textbook screenplay it's just effortless and there's not a wrong note in this movie can't say enough great things about it we'll be back next Friday with an all new episode of the 430 movie wherever you listen to podcasts join us now for the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video pick it up today and you can learn the secrets of the force and don't miss our oral history of star trek in stores now and of course nobody does it better the complete oral history of james bond in digital hardcover paperback and audio that is all sundays on electric now tune in to the official leverage redemption after show a very distinctive podcast with me yell teagle and my co-host felicia michelle each week we'll be breaking down another episode of leverage redemption plus we've got exclusive interviews with the stars as well as some games and we'll even be showing off some amazing fan art so after you watch leverage redemption on imdb tv you'll definitely want to join us here to catch all the easter eggs and behind the scenes fun the official leverage redemption after show a very distinctive podcast sundays on electric now If you like listening to this podcast, you'll love watching us on Electric Now, the free video streaming app featuring video versions of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts, along with full seasons of The Librarians, Leverage, the exclusive Leverage Redemption After Show, as well as Flash Gordon serials, hysterical comedy specials, and much more. Download it today from your favorite app store or watch us on Roku, Stir, DistroTV, Zumo, Sling, or Plex. Welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me, as always, is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. We are going to pick up our conversation right where we left off last time with filmmaker Mike Mendez talking about the many ups and downs of his career. Uh, Where we left off the conversation, he had just been talking about his almost was version of Sleepy Hollow, a project that ultimately went to Tim Burton. Here we go. And, and what the fuck are you going to say when, when Tim Burton wants to do Sleepy Hollow? You're going to go like, yeah, fuck, of course Tim Burton should do Sleepy Hollow. And, <laughs> and you know, the, the, the big difference is that I think when I was 
talking about it. They were looking at maybe a, a $20 million budget or something. When Tim Burton got involved, it was a $90 million budget. So the moral of the story for all intents and purposes, as painful as it was for me, yeah, of course it was better off going to Tim Burton and, you know, <laughs> and, the, and the movie rocks. It's great. You know, it's exactly the script that I had. You would have just gotten. Well, that's what I was going to ask. I was curious if the script changed at all in the between. Only, the only difference, and I feel it's more of what Johnny Depp brought to it is that um Ichabod is more Roddy McDowell and kind of uh prissy. more Ichabod more Ichabod yeah. <laughs> yeah you know uh in the script that that I read he was more you know your handsome dashing kind of lead and uh Johnny Depp kind of and I know like when he came on he wanted to like put a nose on and stuff in the studio yeah. wouldn't let him but but he definitely brought the kind of like you know quirkiness to it which i don't think was present but ultimately no the script was pretty much exactly. oh i was thinking it was the opposite i thought you were saying that it was originally weirder and he made no it no more no, he, brought the, he brought the the weirdness in there um no i think i mean this i don't know how you guys feel about the movie i like the movie i like well it's fine at the time because i mean Every Tim Burton movie he made between Pee Wee and Ed Wood, in my opinion, is essentially a masterpiece. So at the time, I felt like I had mixed feelings about Mars Attacks and right. Sleepy Hollow. Now, decades later, I look back and I'm like, actually, those movies are still uh, pretty great in their yeah, way. Mars Attacks, I went to see at a, at a test screening because that was one of the joys of living in Pasadena. There was always great test screenings that they don't now there's like Winnetka or whatever, but there's always great shit. And so Mars Attacks was one of the, the films. And I remember going to see it and thinking like, this is amazing. This is going to be like the biggest Tim Burton movie ever. <laughs> and then, of course, it, it bombed horribly. And I, it's it amazing bomb. to me they spent that much money on it. Watching it now, just like knowing. And I think it was entirely just because Jack Nicholson had his back. Sure. Yeah, was I think so. so excited about that movie because I just and, like and he was. I'm trying to think what Tim Burton was just off of, you know. Ed I mean, Wood, I think. Yeah, I mean, he Which, was you know, definitely Martin Landau won an Oscar. You know, right. that was he was definitely you know top of his game uh, or whatever. And I, again, I like the movie and I, I like Sleepy Hollow. Sleepy Hollow, admittedly it will always be weird. You know, it's yeah. always like, look, anytime you've kind of processed a movie in your mind and kind of have it in there and tried to make a version of it. And then now you're seeing somebody else doing it, but with like Christopher Lee and like all <laughs> these awesome people, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, yeah that's, that's good. You know, I, I definitely knew like when I'd see the making of and like, Oh, we built the the town. When you, when you're a fucking 22 year old or you now I was 23 or whatever, 23 year old filmmaker. Like you don't think of like, maybe I can build the town. You know, that's just not how indie filmmakers think. You know? no. <laughs> it's just, unfortunately, we're of the mindset of like, well, you know, hope we'll find an existing town and kind of try to make it work <laughs> for the budget. You know, uh, not like the budget. Build the fucking town. I don't care. You know, uh, so it, it's a different different mindset. So anyway. it is crazy, though, that a 23-year-old, not to say you were competing neck and neck with Tim Burton, but, you know, the idea that a 23-year-old and then it went to Tim Burton. It's like part that... of the reason I feel like a goddamn idiot. That's a wonderful little puff piece of the 23-year-old <laughs> little wonderkin that, you know, did all this. But that's why no matter what, I should have just said yes, because that probably would have, again, I don't feel... I still think I'd be the little culty schlub that I am, uh, <laughs> even if I did those bigger movies. The difference would would be that at 23, I'd be making 200 grand a year, and that would have been <laughs> yeah. fun. Yeah, but I, mean, <laughs> I might be dead now, but that would have been fun. You you uh, lived you lived like you know I was out here in the 90s trying to to get work, and the the thought of 
getting a film into Sundance was the biggest thing ever. And the fact that at such an early age, you got, I mean, the convent was at Sundance also, right? Yeah. Yeah. My first two films were, were at Sundance before they wised up and saying, what are we doing? Uh, (laughs) That's like, uh, you know, that's like uh, a filmmaker's dream because you were there during the height of Sundance. And and now it's, now it's my goal to get back there. I have a couple of things I'm working on that again, maybe it's a total pipe dream, but it's like, I want to go back to Sundance. Like it's like Rocky Balboa or something like I got a little more in the basement. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to do it one more time. Your trainers working on your, I forget what they call Rocky's fists and Rocky Balboa's, but you know, the, uh, yeah, I forget exactly what it is, but yeah need some hurting yeah some yeah uh, yeah hurt machines or whatever yeah anyway but uh yeah so so no it it, that was a crazy time and again it it was really truly life-changing even though like okay yes i didn't become a big studio director you know it still opened the path to continue on being a filmmaker and now i'm on movie number nine and pretty soon hopefully movie number 10 and uh that I don't, I don't know. And that's one thing I truly can say if I didn't get into Sundance at that point, I don't know if that would be true. You know, I mean, it certainly, certainly set a course on my life that, you know, there was a definitive line of before and after. And I can't say that about anything else that's happened to me. I just, I was just looking at your IMDb again. And to my previous point of looking at your IMDb and discovering things I didn't know about, is it? I just looked under here. I was like, "Wait, you have one art department credit, which is a, <laughs> as property master on our former guest Josh Olson's movie <laughs> Infested." Yes. How did that happen? Uh, that was also at one of those. Boy, I need a job. Uh, this is, I think, when I was trying to get Grave Dancers made, uh, and uh, there was a very, uh, yeah, there's been a couple real lulls in my life that they last about six years one was after convent between convent and grave dancers and then one was between grave dancers and big ass spider where there's like these six years of well you're gonna have to fucking find a way to make a living somehow <laughs> and uh, that's when all of a sudden editing seemed like a great thing all of a sudden <laughs> like yeah i will you know i can and, and really just a tie tie this up on what we said before um you know after all the sleepy hollow and studio stuff didn't happen uh, and the convent happened and the studios stopped calling after that. Uh, you know, it, it really does become like, well, how, how does an indie filmmaker make a living if nobody's making your indie films uh, or films, <laughs> period? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so really it just kind of came down to like, what do I know how to do? And because thankfully I would made all my movies and stuff like that, I, I did know how to edit. And so uh, I think my first or one of my first legitimate uh, editing jobs was um, the D- some of the DVD extras for Spider-Man 2 uh, was uh, one of the things that kind of kept me afloat for a while. But how do you uh, get that kind of job? That was, uh, all, I think also, uh, you know, shout out to him twice now. Uh, Dave Parker was uh, that. He was uh, uh, working for a guy named uh, uh, Charles Lazarica, who is an amazing, was an amazing, well, no, still is, I shouldn't say that, uh, is an amazing uh, uh, content producer for DVD extras and, and documentaries, behind the scenes stuff. I, I think of him now more as a filmmaker because he's been directing stuff. So, so, uh, but he did like the Gladiator disc and all the Blade Runners and, you know, um, very 
because he was always working on cool stuff. And that's one of my favorites, by the way, the alien. If you rent, if you have the alien box set, he did like the incredible documentaries on there. Yeah, he was always doing really awesome stuff. So it was kind of like, hey, can I get a job there? So, you know, so it was uh, the Spider-Man multicam thing of what it's like to be on on the set of Spider-Man was like the first kind of. I guess, professional thing I edited or whatever. And so that kind of led into the, into the DVD world anyway. uh, But uh, what what we're saying, infested, infested. So, um, so yeah, in one of those, those lulls, um, I was married at the time and just kind of like, how are we going to pay rent, honey? Uh, (laughs) And, and, uh, you know, I got a call that uh, a friend of mine was producing this independent film in New York uh, and they needed a, a property master and, and my, uh, girlfriend who would eventually be my ex-wife uh you know was a, a costumer so uh we were like yeah she could do the costumes i could do the props and and we, we did a drove out cross country and uh, met josh olson uh who was making uh, basically uh the as he described it i believe uh the big chill with killer flies uh, <laughs> 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 and uh starring amy joe johnson and, and Zach uh, Galligan from and Zach Galligan, yes, that's right. Uh, and uh, anyway, and so yeah, so that was just a really crazy uh project. Vinny Guastini did the the uh the fly effects, that's where I met him. Uh, and yeah, and that, that was uh, again, one of those just kind of weird, weird journeys that you're happy just uh, hey, I was happy to make a movie in New York, mm-hmm. you know, that was that was fun that's- so. I, I, I saw like in a Fangoria, you were attached to a project called Dead Stuff. Sure. Well, Dead Stuff is, I mean, yeah, that's talk about a movie that never got made. Uh, that's why what I year to do. is this we're talking about? Fuck, this is early on. I mean, it's yes. and it's continued in my life because ultimately, so Dead Stuff's one of the things I want to do after Convent, which was, uh, yeah, sometimes I find, and I don't know, I, I heard John Landis talk about this, and I don't know if you feel this way as a writer sometimes you get a script and nobody wants to make the script, but there's good stuff in it and you end up kind of chopping it up into little pieces and using bits in other scripts Does that ever happened oh, yeah, to you. For sure. Yeah. So, or at least what, we keep trying to, I don't know. That's what, <laughs> that's what, Landis, uh, that's what he describes his uh, see you next Wednesday, um, you know, uh, which is in all the catchphrase in all his films or whatever, mm. that that's his film that he wrote was see you next Wednesday. And that it kind of broke, bits apart for other films so dead stuff is kind of like that for me it's uh uh the idea was and and i still want to do it but the idea is that it's a found a found film from 1984 that was too (laughs) grotesque for the time but uh we have found it we've we've unsealed it and it is a just a total splatterfest 80s cheesy love affair to you know the burning and sleepaway camp and the thing and you know and so it was kind of just a very funny as a you know uh horror comedy kind of like splatter film or whatever and what it ended becoming uh is a lot of people seen a little bit of dead stuff because dead stuff is uh or i should say my tales of halloween segment is the opening scene of dead stuff ah um, and uh, and so there is a whole entire script that takes off from that point. Uh, but I always wanted to do that opening because I was like, oh, I think that's really fun. And I really and that's and just when we gave the opportunity, got the opportunity to do whatever you wanted. It's like, well, you know, you have all these kind of things tucked away that you'd like to see get made. So I was like, well, look, I don't know if the movie will ever get made, but I really want to see this opening and it would work as a standalone short. So that that's how that came about. So uh, and everyone true. should see Tales of Halloween. 
if they have not. Is yes. that streaming somewhere currently? That is streaming. That is streaming on Shutter, and that is streaming on Amazon Prime. That's now it's a. I used to think that like movies were only like on one streaming service, and now now it just seems all over like, the place. What about Killers? Yeah. I actually forgot to ask that when we were talking about Killers. Is killers that- is on killers and and that was you know that's a, a a weird thing also the the downfall about shooting on film to a certain degree is i thought that movie was lost if you would have asked me four years ago i thought like ah, i don't think that's ever ever coming out because you know when it comes out distributors take it and there's only so many prints and then uh they sold it to um, oh god was it who did they who released killers the first time i think it was actually released uh through alpine and then they only had it for certain years and then gave it back to the investor who gave it a, apparently he tells me one day he's like i gave it to a guy i met on a plane and all you <laughs> gave the rights of the movie to a guy you met on the plane we yeah, playing poker. Yeah, yeah well mm-hmm. I'll, I'll say i mean this is a this will take a little bit of a dark turn here there is uh there is a sad part about killers even though it launched my career and it was my first film and you know uh there's a, a fan base for it the uh co the co-writer director star of it dave larson passed away uh he, he uh essentially had a alcohol poisoning oh, oh. yeah yeah exactly uh and uh and so that became kind of a dark subject for his dad who was like the executive producer who was helping us do it now this movie was just a reminder of his son's passing or whatever. And, and yeah, it didn't, yeah, he, I don't think he has a good memory of, of the film, unfortunately. Uh, but um, anyway, so, so for a while, because of that, because of, he just wanted to be done with it and, you know, different distributors and different countries passing prints along or whatever. And it, it just had come out before DVDs were a thing. So it was just out on VHS uh, that I didn't know, where it existed i had one very beat up print which is like the one i took to sundance uh and then i couldn't find it and then lo and behold it was found in a lab uh, you know in a vault uh somewhere that uh the original company that was supposed to give it back to the investor never did and so they had it and then thank god uh, a company called uh, multicom uh, purchased it did a 4k uh retransfer that's what's on amazon prime so all of a sudden I'm like oh my god my first movie is saved and uh later this year i believe a uh, synapse film is uh releasing a blue oh, awesome so, oh nice that's uh, awesome yeah, that'll be a proper 4k and they're also doing the convent and i and perhaps perhaps grave dancers too but but uh but oh, we'll see but but nice. uh, but and there's box set yes that would yeah. be amazing <laughs> uh, they're definitely doing the convent and killers uh hopefully this year uh the convent was a little bit of a similar thing where we didn't know exactly where the original elements were. We do now, if, if uh, the lab will just go, uh, we can do a proper, proper 4k transfer to get super technical. There was a 4k transfer that exists of the convent. That's I believe also you can find on Amazon prime, but it was of the print. Uh, so it's not, quite there's a big difference if you do it from the negative or the print uh negatives is usually what um you know most blu-rays dvds anything any transfers come from the print like gives it this weird retro quality that i have to admit i kind of like because it really you know the comment was always designed to be a movie that felt like it was from the 80s and now it really does feel like it's from the 80s even though it was made <laughs> in, the, in the late 90s uh but uh, so that that's kind of cool and i kind of enjoy that so anyway. that's awesome yeah yeah i saw in an article you were brought in for the friday the 13th remake i think that it was after the michael bay remake when I think they were 
they were talking about the found footage angle around that time. I, you- I, I met on that. I did. I did a uh, a found footage little reel, uh, you know, of what a Friday the 13th found footage thing would do that sometimes. And again, I, I you know, it, they usually are just massive wastes of money, but sometimes <laughs> just to, to, to meet on a project. I'll make a little film or I'll make a little thing and spend way too much money. I'll just throw like, Oh, I'll spend three grand just so I could get this meeting. And then it never goes anywhere. They were like, Oh, I mean, it got me the meeting, you know, they, they, they <laughs> spoke to me just to say, we won't hire you, but we like you, you know, which is Wait, literally this, what they, they said. Was this uh, before or after? Cause I know you talked to them about Freddie versus Jason as well. I think this is right? after I think Freddie versus yeah, no um, Freddie versus Jason. I honestly, think i did pretty well i think i might it might have gone a little further if i was just a little better known i think i just i think they liked me but they were like yeah but we kind of need someone just a little bit more established or whatever because they were talking to you know peter jackson and they were talking to you know ronnie you ended up doing it or whatever so so i definitely uh i met on that but that's one of those things if you were around that time in the meetings which is we're talking like 97 to like 2006 let's say in that kind of area that freddie versus jason was just this ever going yeah. project mm-hmm. that new, the new the new head you know new producers new studio execs they wanted their take so i think i met on that like three times or whatever so well and it's become uh, a recurring thing on this show so i'm curious did you ever talk to bob weinstein about hellraiser and or children of the corn <laughs> No, I didn't. I actually, I never met Bob. I met Harvey. Lucky me. Uh, Now, now is a story that I used to like always feel embarrassed about because like my first Hollywood party and uh, the proud thing I should say, uh, Harvey Weinstein is responsible for my agent. Yay. Uh, Because apparently he had showed my agent the movie or whatever. And so I get things you do when you're young and just you probably shouldn't do now because this is again, you know, I'm twice as old now. Um, you know, I was at this party and, and Harvey Weinstein's there and he's, and he's talking to Robert Rodriguez and you probably shouldn't interrupt that if you're a fucking sensible person, but I'm an idiot. And I'm like, yeah, 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 thank you so much. And, you know, and, and I think Harvey Weinstein quickly walked away, excuse me, and just left, but fuck him. He's a rapist. Yeah. Fuck him. <laughs> <laughs> really? It doesn't matter now who, who's you know, I'm still here. Thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so. Um, oh anyway but yeah so i but but don't interrupt famous people while they're having a chat they probably want to wait did you, you know. talk to robert rodriguez at all i or? did oh uh, robert uh, i i spoke to him briefly at that party um you know he, he was nice enough but he's been wonderful uh in in you know uh he's always been sweet to me. Uh, when, uh, big ass spider was at South by Southwest, he gave me a tour of troublemaker studios. Um, and I remember also, uh, when I won a, a Saturn award for big ass spider, he was the first person I saw off stage and was just like, Hey man, congratulations. So he's always, uh, he's always been great. I, I have some issues with the Boba Fett show, but that's a different matter. And I don't, I don't know if I, I don't know where the blame should properly be assessed, but, uh, that's, that's all I'm going to say. Uh, <laughs> Wait, I also, uh, several things I kind of want to segue into, but this is the first one I thought of. Can you talk a little bit about, because I guess I also forgot to mention at the top of the show, talking about your uh, Mike of all trades career. Um, for those of you who have watched the delightful insanity that is James Wan's malignant, yes. uh, Mike has <laughs> a 
fantastic cameo in the opening scene of that movie. I guess, could you talk just a little bit about your relationship to James Wan and what sure. even led up to that bit part? And, and this will be a little good segue here about also not necessarily a movie that wasn't made, but a, a part of a movie that wasn't made. So let me get to that. So uh, James Wan has been a, a dear friend uh, since I'd say... 2004 i think I, I met him the weekend saw came out and i'm just uh, i'm just a, a lucky fucker that he happened to be a big fan of the convent uh and <laughs> and him and lee Wanell apparently watched the convent while they were making saw uh oh, and, and that's where they learned and we learned and that's one of the first things that we had a bond about was that the convent and saw were shot at the same location uh and and that was just kind of oh, like oh that, that. that's that's weird yeah yeah totally and then his dp of saw ended up being my dp on grave dancers and either way um you know there was always we just always were very good friends and he's one of my favorite people and not only do i think he's one of the most talented genre filmmakers out there i think he's one of the best people i know you know and that's the god's honest truth uh and i feel very fortunate to, to have that you know, I stayed his friend because he doesn't need me. <laughs> he could have been very Hollywood and just cut me off years ago. But, you know, look, I will say I was always there during when things weren't great, when when death sentence perhaps did not light the world on fire, <laughs> dead silence. You know, I was still like, dude, but it's a fucking death sentence rocks. That movie's awesome. And so, um, you know, so I was always a, a you know, a pro James Wan. And obviously then he shot through the stratosphere and, uh at some point, you know, he certainly could have shooed me away. But then when I saw Malignant, I was reminded of like, oh, yeah, that's why we're friends. That <laughs> He likes weird bat shit, fucking back of the video store insanity like I do. And obviously we still have that bond. And it's because of that, it's is why he asked me, uh, or one of the reasons I think of why he asked me to be in Malignant is that he told me, he's like, I finally made a Mike Mendez movie. <laughs> he's like, so much so I wanted to pat Mike Mendez in the opening of the movie uh, just to do which is so sweet and that's i mean oh that's fucking amazing but but the other the other thing uh besides the the role i play I, i'm a small you know security guard but i'm i like to think of myself as a, as gabriel's first victim uh <laughs> which is fun because <laughs> uh, i'm the first victim in the movie but but um he was so amazing because that's a reshoot and i had an entirely other other part in the movie uh, that was cut out. So this is the the part of Malignant that was never made or whatever. Uh, so originally, in part of the original shoot, uh, before COVID or anything, uh, I played a B-movie director. I don't know where he came up with that. I don't know where mm -hmm. <laughs> that idea would have possibly crossed his mind. Uh, but um, the the sister in the movie is an actress. And uh, when, uh, you know, the main girl gets, a, 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 you know, a head trauma, she calls from the hospital. And, and the scene that I was in is she was in an audition uh, for a sci-fi channel movie uh, of which I was the director of in, in that film or whatever but that understandably I, I knew when we were shooting I'm like I don't see this making the final cut I have a feeling it's going to get cut so it did get cut and then James being the awesome dude he was like you know what I still want you in the film we're doing these reshoots we're doing this new opening so do you want to play a security guard so uh, I got paid twice uh, and, <laughs> <laughs> so, and uh, yeah ended up in the film so that was great oh that's awesome the other thing I wanted to segue into as far as going back to the very beginning of our conversation tonight, 
and again, highlighting your amazing uh, toy collection. Ah, yes. Another again, people should check out the Electric Now app so they can see video of Mike's toy collection. But, um, you know, when COVID started, it's also interesting that we're now so far into it. I'm sure everyone's kind of had the same observation that it was like two weeks into lockdown, everyone was going bonkers and being like, we should have a Zoom party where we all are wearing tuxedos and make <laughs> martinis. And it's just like, it's been two weeks since I saw you guys. Right. Like, it's it's okay. And then, you know, eight months in, nobody gave a shit anymore about that. Sure. But um, I feel like a lot of people are kind of trying to figure out, like, what do I do now that I can't do anything? And I got to say, I think you had, as far as like filmmaker friends of mine, um, the best response <laughs> was you just started making stop motion things about you and your vast toy collection, many of which are like, especially because, again, like, yeah, I don't know all the like editing tricks. Like, I don't know what program you were using to kind of lightly animate the mouths of the sure, sure, sure. action. But you know, just, I was just like, I was pretty blown away by yeah. all the things you're doing, which everyone should check out on YouTube. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, first <laughs> off. Uh, but, you know, the guy, and I know people can't, are not, aren't necessarily seeing the background, but it's like, look, if you're locked away with all this shit around you and you can't do anything, I mean, like, what, what what's a guy to do? You know? <laughs> it's just, but the God's honest truth is, and that was a very strange, weird period in my filmmaking life because I kind of counted just as much as I do the features. It was definitely a, a moment where I mean, what an odd. I mean, let's take a moment now and take a breath and look back. What what a strange time. I mean, this is shit we've only seen in horror movies and sci-fi shows is suddenly happening. Just the fact that even still we have to wear masks and we're in this dystopian society that we can't go near each other. And you know, I mean, it's still fucking bizarre. But when it happened, it was just like, what? This is you know, but <laughs> but. So, okay, so there's the fear part, right? Am I going to die? Am I going to make it? Is society going to crumble? Are we going into Mad Max? There's all those, there's all, all those thoughts. But then, and, and I guess there's different ways of how you deal with the apocalypse. But then there's the kind of the night of the comet kind of freedom uh, of like, you know, because, it's the, and I really do mean this. It was the first time in my life I didn't feel responsibility, you know, because I, I, you know, again, like I've said, I've been working since I was 10 years old, right? And I, and I, as you look on the IMDb, it's like, I like working. It's just what I do. It's just, I, I work. And then all of a sudden for, and if I don't work, if I'm unemployed, and I think a lot of people share this, that your self-worth goes down, you get neurotic. You're just, I am, I am the most worthless piece of shit. I can't, you know, ah, you know, and, and, you know, and that is largely related to how much money's coming in or how much you're, you know, how well you're doing or whatever. And uh, all of a sudden the world shut down. The industry you worked in, you're in most of your life is does not exist currently. I always had took editing as a fallback because I always felt like, well, at, you know, people are always shooting. So there's always stuff to edit. There's, you know, there's always going to be a place for editors. That's the job that will never go away. But suddenly it did. Suddenly for the first <laughs> yeah. time ever, no one's shooting anything. What are you going to edit? You can uh, maybe a sequel to the Bimbo Movie Bash. Who knows? But uh, <laughs> it, but but you can't do anything. And as usually that would be met with neurosis and fear. But all of a sudden, you know, you're getting well. Unemployment gives you six hundred extra dollars a week. And I was like, well, I can live on that. And, and all of a sudden, it's like the 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 pressure was off. And I felt that that a freedom, a weird freedom. As much as the world was fucking ending and like everyone was scared, I just felt like. 
I don't have to go to work. (laughs) (laughs) This is amazing. And for better or worse, it's like, I am used to the solitary lifestyle. I am a single nerd (laughs) that edits. Okay. I have plenty of time being alone. So, uh, you know, it was sort of like, well, fuck, you know, I don't have to do anything. And it, for the first time, and it honestly was very, I, I don't know. I was just kind of thinking about this today, honestly. Um, it's a very weird thing because I, I, I feel artistic minds are very neurotic. I'm not saying all of them, but, you know, I think it just a, a, a lends itself to it. And I think the first part of your career, you're wondering, do I have any talent? Do I have any ability? Do I have anything to offer or whatever? And you feel like you're a fake or whatever, uh, and uh, or that you're trying to prove yourself or whatever. But now, all of a sudden, the pandemic happens. No one's working. Nothing's happening. None of it mattered anymore. And I wanted to make movies solely because I wanted to make movies, you know, and that really came, I really think out of anything I've ever done in my life, those stop motion shorts I did in my apartment are the purest expression I've ever had because I didn't write any scripts. I didn't plan anything. It was literally, and, and, you know, yes, I used some apps for the the mouth animation but other than that it was my iphone and a tripod and a remote control and just frame by arduous frame of <laughs> toy it's animation like the good old days yeah and i really thought back to you know obviously i love toys and obviously that affects me somehow but it, i went back to being a child and back to those super eight films or the the vcr stuff that i was talking about earlier about animating my toys and i was like you know when you were a kid you used to be able to like just make adventures and, and, you know, jump in ships and fly and do whatever the fuck you wanted. You know, there's no budgets, no rules. And I'm like, I still can do that with action figures. I just have better technology and more skills now <laughs> that I, I can play like a kid. It's just in slow motion. <laughs> Wait, what's slow the, motion. what's the title of the first one you did? So people uh, can, can be, uh, there can, no, ah, there can only be one. That's the Guillermo del Toro one. And then uh, the abysmal is the uh, the James Cameron one, which is too long, but but I got carried away. The first but one is the one I love that, not to have a spoiler, I, of all the things I loved about it, I think the thing I loved the most was that you used whatever that creature is called from Big Trouble in Little China as the coronavirus. <laughs> right, sure. The, the ball with all the little, like, you know, eyes and appendages. Right. I had little, this is a true story. I had little auditions in my apartment by myself of who <laughs> could be the coronavirus. I'm trying to think who were the other, oh, fuck. I had, yeah, who else? I, was, I, I would try just different weird globby things. I'm sure Slimer was one, but that was too obvious. And then, <laughs> and then but, but yeah, the big trouble little China thing was like, I think, I think I've cast you as the coronavirus. I think, I think it's you're the one. Brain. Anyway. But, uh, but yeah, no, it was really a, a, a kind of a, a weird freeing time that really brought me back to my very basic filmmaking roots. And no matter what, no matter that I'm not a studio director or I'm not rich or I'm not living the career that I dreamed I would have, I, I, it really reminded me. And, and for evermore, I really do mean this. I owned the idea of like, I'm a filmmaker, goddammit, because when the world mm-hmm. fucking ends and I have nothing, I'm still fucking making movies. It's the only thing I want to do and nobody's going to stop me. And it really has kind of lit a fuse that I think I'm on now of kind of a whole new wave of movies that hopefully are coming soon. So, you know, so. I mean, I love that because you, you referenced Night of the Comet and I love it. In Night of the Comet, their version of that is that they're like, wait, we can go to the mall and 
get whatever clothes we want. And for you, it was right. like, I'm going to make a movie with my toys. God damn. Well, you know, there's only certain, look, if, if there was no people around, I'm sure I would be doing donuts in the middle of the street with a Ferrari, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. I couldn't do that. Speaking uh, but... of your toys, uh, and you can say no if for whatever reason, uh, but one of my favorite stories you've ever told me is about when Dolph Lundgren came over to your old apartment sure. with, to see a cut of Don't Kill It. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yes, I was, I live in a very nerdy place and, you know, Dolph Lundgren, you know, is a very impressive man. That's all, that's all I can say is <laughs> it's very unfair. The, the way DNA is distributed among humans is very unfair. Some of us get the Danny DeVito genes and some of us get the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger Dolph Lundgren genes. Oh, and he's, uh, yeah. And he's like a genius. Like and he's a twins. genius and he's, yeah. I mean, you know, he's like a real life Thor, you know? Yeah. And, and so he's coming over to my place and I can't hide this. It's it's not like, like ah, <laughs> you know, so you have to kind of lean into it. And so I, I took out all of all of the Dolph related things I had and like Castle Grayskull and like, uh, you know, the, the Drago figures and stuff like that. And uh, that was my my litmus test that if he liked the movie, because it was the first time he was seeing it. If he liked the movie, I would ask him to take a picture with Castle Grayskull because he'd be happy with me and, you know, like, oh, I'll do what the little nerd wants me to. Uh, yeah. and, and if not, I wasn't. But thankfully, he liked the film. You know, we took the we took the picture with Castle Grayskull. It went viral. Uh, if you type in Dolph Castle Grayskull, you'll see it in my place. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, that was fun. I mean, I, I still think he was very taken aback. I think he was like, what the fuck? But he had kind of gotten to know me and like me and just know he's a nerd Uh, (laughs) did he ever tell you the story it's like it's the thing i'm so fascinated by was that his family when he was away they were there was a home invasion where the armed robbers like tied up to family and then all of a sudden i did talk to him about that mainly because i actually wanted to turn it into a movie because i thought that was a wait what what era was this in his life 2009 i think it was Okay. He wasn't. He wasn't home. It was. He mm-hmm. had a home in Spain, and his wife was home. An ex-wife now, but his ex-wife was home. And these robbers came in. They tied her up, and and they and they looked around and saw all these photos of Dolph Lundgren, and then they freaked out and said, "I'm sorry, I'm sorry." They untied her and they and they ran. Wow, uh, the greatest I, story ever. And I, I would <laughs> like to make the movie version of what if Dolph was home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, what's, what's amazing about that story was it was it that they were like oh we're scared of Dolph or it was just reverential where they're just like oh my god I love, yeah, I love Drago we so cannot, we cannot defile yeah. the home of Drago yeah I don't know I think it was fear I believe I love but... showdown in little Tokyo <laughs> yeah exactly yeah well, I, I don't a, know it's a good movie yeah, but but no, that, that that was a true a true story. He was not home, but but yes. Uh, my other, I have a I have a couple favorite Dolph stories. My my favorite Dolph story he ever told me was his first day at MIT because he had all these teachers that had um, written him recommendations off of his GPA and things he'd written, but they've never seen him before. So uh, so it's his first day at MIT. All his professors are lined up on the curb, and I think he's like you know 22, 23 or something like that. Uh, he shows up on a Harley shirtless with Grace Jones on the back. <laughs> and, uh, and I think his teachers were a little surprised. <laughs> so, Wait, and what's the, because we teed it up at the very beginning of this conversation. Uh, what's the Aquaman connection with Don't Kill It? Uh, the Aquaman is just, uh, I showed James uh, Don't Kill It. And 
I told him because I, I really, you know, I, I, I like I said before, when you when you see Dolph Lundgren, you think superhero because you're like, no human has genetics like this. He's fucking six, seven and like all muscle and a genius. And 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 I and I told him, I'm like, you know, I couldn't help but think like he should be like some king in Aquaman or something, you know, or whatever. And next thing you know, he's auditioning <laughs> to be king in Aquaman. So, so you know. Uh, James and I have a very nice relationship uh, that way. We, we, I can suggest stuff and sometimes it'll happen, you know, so you'll see it in it. films, you know, so. It, it was awesome because he was in Creed 2 and then all of a sudden he was in Aquaman in the same like spawn of well, like two months. It was, it's, yeah. uh, I remember when you first told me that I was like, oh, is he going to be Aquaman's dad? Because it's undeniable that if they'd made an Aquaman movie in the late 80s, that's what you I would was have had to cast Dolph Lundgren. Like, he that, looks that was my thinking. That was exactly my thinking was like, oh, my God, he would have been the perfect 80s mm -hmm. Aquaman. Yeah. So now he should play like some like, you know, the the current Atlantis King. He didn't play exactly the, what I thought he should, but I mean, he was another. It is hard king. to buy him as Jason Momoa's dad. So well, exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, he speaking was, but, of Boba Fett. Um, right. <laughs> but uh, I think maybe uh, a nice way to cap things. Are you can you talk about your Bruce Dern? stuff a little bit or is that too absolutely yeah yeah uh, okay I I yeah just... that's great because we talked about the covid thing right uh which I'm, i love I'm an open book man i just you okay. know I'm I, I just remember when i saw you again we talked about this like a brief period where we were all vaccinated and yeah uh, naively thought that the world was going back to normal uh, and we're having parties again and i remember you were like oh the, i got offered this movie the shooting in florida i don't know well, look, it's going to be in. <laughs> I, I will say this uh, carefully. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, uh, it was a weird experience where the the I, I believe I don't know what happened to him, I believe the director uh, was fired a few weeks before production and I came in to replace it. I wanted to do it because Bruce Dern uh, was a part of it. Bruce Dern did it because it met his salary. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and basically... <laughs> I, with two weeks of prep, went to Miami uh, to shoot uh, this crazy movie, which is kind of cool. And I think we did good stuff and the script was cool and Bruce was amazing. But at the same time, it was this very no budget by the seat of your pants production that I think we got some good stuff, but it was definitely uh it was definitely harriet and it was definitely an experience to say the least but the the best thing that came out of it hopefully a good movie comes out of it we're working on that and i definitely think we got some some good shit uh but the best thing that came out of it was a, a very genuine relationship with, with bruce dern who i i absolutely adore as a person and uh our, our friendship kind of continued past um, the movie and I started spending time with him and honestly one of the best storytellers I've ever met in my life so much to the point that I'm like it is a fucking crime that I'm not recording this you know I, I, you're telling such amazing stories you have you know interactions many interactions with Hitchcock with Betty Davis with you know uh, Marilyn Monroe with Robert Redford with you know you name it with Jack Nicholson with his best friend Corman movies you know it goes on and on let alone Quentin Tarantino Nebraska all these things that I was like can I make a documentary about you <laughs> uh, and he's like yeah so we began uh, these interviews which we just wrapped 
uh, right before the end of the year, uh, which we have 60 hours of uh, Bruce Dern talking about uh, his uh, his career. We're uh, now out to get a few other filmmakers. We're getting we got Joe Dante. Um, we have some other I don't want to say until I have them locked and on film, but we have some other great filmmakers lined up, hopefully. Uh, and that's, yeah, a very unexpected next project that I made a documentary about Bruce. So I love awesome. it. I mean, what a I wouldn't even call it a left turn. Just this un un unexpected bump in the Mike Mendez career journey. The movie was unexpected. Uh, you know, meeting Bruce was unexpected. And then the, the documentary was completely un unexpected. I mean, really, from the idea of having it to us, shooting it was about two weeks. You know, it was something like, let's let's do it because you know the stories aren't going to get any fresher you know uh he's you know his memory is amazing but you know he's 85 you know and, and so i felt like it honestly just felt like my duty like you know like i gotta record this this is fucking amazing you know some of these stories and uh so we have them now and hopefully we'll all get to share on them uh you know about a year from now maybe at sundance who knows uh, so. <laughs> oh dude that's awesome return return to sundance for mike mendez i well, like it we'll, we'll we'll see i uh, you know my <laughs> luck probably not but that's the you know that, that's where i'd like to see it to go so oh man can't wait yeah, no, I think it's that. I think it's good. I mean, obviously, I think it's for a certain type of, of audience. It's got to be film buffs and cinephiles. But if you're a film buff and cinephile, like, fuck, yeah, this is going to be a goddamn treat. Yeah, so. I mean, I'm certainly, I mean, again, I keep feel, feel like I'm constantly mentioning seeing you at parties. Not like I see you at that many parties, but uh, I feel like I, I, I talk to you. I am social. <laughs> I feel like I talk to you in between when you had just, like, this had just started, but before you decided to start, making the movie because i remember you just talking about like yeah i keep meeting him at ihop yeah he keeps yeah. telling me all the stories and i'm like this is like that book my lunches with orson well, that henry jaglone recorded like months of uh that's <laughs> lunches really what, he had what, with orson wells what it kind of began as what was you know the he would tell these stories on set but the thing is that he's very long-winded god bless him but he loves to talk and he loves to talk in between takes and, and you feel like you're on an indie schedule, man. You got it. You got, you got shit to do. You got to move on. But he's telling you the story about, Oh, on family plot, you know, Mr. Hitchcock came here or, Oh, did I ever tell you the time Steven Spielberg was on the set of family plot and Hitchcock threw him off set. Like <laughs> I'm going to interrupt that. Like I'm yeah. going to go like, yeah, that's great, Bruce, but really we need another take of this. And, and look, I'm a hundred percent right to do that. But I can't. So I have to kind of like, okay, tell me this amazing story. Okay, fuck, great. All right, let's go. And then and then shoot the thing. And so he lives in Pasadena, which is near where I live. Uh, and, uh, you know, early on, we established that his favorite restaurant was IHOP. I'm a fat fuck. I like pancakes. <laughs> uh, so I, I was like, can I take you to uh, IHOP? Uh, and he's like, yeah, absolutely. Bruce Dern eats like shit. FYI, just a fun, fun, a little, uh, fun little aside there. He eats crepes with butter and bacon. How does he make it to 85? That's what I, what's his secret? That's what I want to know. Uh, he ran, you know, like something like 150,000 miles in his life or something crazy like that. He's no, got, that's like, the part know, I don't do. I see. Yeah, I don't know. He, he, I mean, and, and this is all in the documentary there was a point in his life he just would run everywhere so he would live in santa monica he i can't fucking believe this he, he would run from santa monica to the queen mary 
What? In, in a Long day? Beach? Wow. Yeah, wow. 51 miles. He would run 51 miles. And then someone would pick him up and take him home or whatever. But that was just just, just what he did for fun. All back to Forrest Gump from Oh, yeah, totally. He, I mean, and, and speaking of kind of real life Forrest Gump, except he's not mentally deficient by any means, uh, he actually began uh, helping uh, Tom Hanks uh, run, you know, for Forrest Gump. He had wow. uh, neighbors and <laughs> gave him some tips. But but that's the thing. And it's his, his entire family from you know his his father to to laura dern they're just always touching greatness you know i mean obviously they're great people as well but you know the, everyone they come in contact is a legend it, it it's so mind-blowing it's so weird you know like oh steven spielberg's my my godfather you know my my uh, grandson's godfather uh you know or fuck you know or yeah my first play was with paul newman and uh you know i mean it, it just goes on and on of the people he's met it's actually uh you know obviously he shot john wayne uh you know mm-hmm. that's that's a famous story you know it, it's actually more surprising when he tells me people that he didn't meet uh he never met brando and that that's actually really surprising to me because they're both big actor studio people and whatever but uh yeah no no there, there's really really some gems in this in this thing so now it's up the hard part we got to cut it and you know <laughs> really really bring it out and, and make it shine but but uh i i think uh cinephiles everywhere are in for some some really good tales some that's true Hollywood tales that are fun that's awesome i can't wait yeah. And uh, it's funny, uh, uh, Bruce Dern shooting John Wayne and the Cowboys just came up in uh, the previous episode we did before this with Fred oh, Decker. Really? Oh, yeah. That's funny, yeah, the Cowboys was a big inspiration for Fred Decker's uh, sequel reboot to Cliffhanger. Oh, okay. Oddly right. enough. <laughs> Interesting. All right. No, the, Cow- the Cowboys is a very cool movie. And yes, he'll tell the whole story about where he, he was on the set of Silent Running. And uh, they, they told him, like, it was a big deal at the time. Like, we're going to kill, you know, John Wayne. No one's ever done that before. And he needed to get two days off of silent running. And so he told Drug, Drug Trumbull, he's like, don't tell anybody, but I am going to kill John Wayne. I need two days off. Is there any way I can do it? <laughs> and then Doug Trumbull turns to the crew of 60 to his dad across the way. He's like, Dad! Bruce needs to kill Bruce Dern for two days. Can we can we do something without him? <laughs> All of a sudden, <laughs> entire crew knew. Uh, anyway, but but yeah, so so yeah, lots of good good tales to to come on this. So nice, amazing. Uh, well, before we cut it, there was one more movie. Uh, can I bring up? It's, oh, yeah. it was called it was called Overkill. Sure, sure, and Overkill. You, and you had and you had a trailer for it. That's why I wanted to ask because I'm always fast, you know, because you were talking about earlier you did a trailer for Sleepy Hollow, and then you yeah, you it, it tra- happens from time to time uh, that I make trailers. And again, this is another movie that never happened, and I'll get into probably why in, in a moment here. But this is something I do for better or worse. Sometimes it works, like you know the. Um, like that Friday the 13th one got me the meeting, didn't get me a job, but it got me the meeting. And then um, Overkill was something that uh, I was trying to raise money for and I could have done it, but it wasn't really that appealing. If I wanted no backend and do it for some shystery people, I could have done it. The no mm. backend, I wrote, directed, did the thing. I'm like, yeah, great, you get nothing. <laughs> if it does well, you get zero. It's one of those things that it's just like on principle, like, I want to make the movie, but how can, how can I fucking say yes to that anyway? So, um, but I, there was another time, the one that it did work was, this is a very sad story. I'll make it, I'll make it very quickly. Uh, so I was trying to do uh, my movie Grave Dancers and Grave Dancers was a script that I had read, uh, written by Chris Skinner and Brad Keen. Uh, and it was just a script I just kind of fell in love with the idea of ghosts following you home 
you know, I think um, uh, Insidious did it a little later, but the idea that the ghosts follow you was kind of like, that's really cool. And uh, at the time we had set it up with, uh, with Madonna's company Maverick, who at the time had a deal with Fox. And for a moment we were told the movie was greenlit and we were going to make it for $15 million. And was also like that Sundance moment that, that, that happy thing. The difference on this one was it wasn't true, you know? So you have that happy <laughs> moment, but then later, later get the crushing defeat of like, it was a lie. All those tears of joy I shed. That was, that was a lie. Huh? Oh, cool. So basically they, they um, didn't have the money that they told us they did. And then, um, but before that had happened, Fox, who was the distributor, uh, had seen the convent and seen um, the script. And there was like, yeah, we're not green lighting it with this guy. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. And ouch, yeah. And, uh, you know, this as a script I found, it's a script I helped rewrite and develop. And they, you know, got all the way to green light and that it's like, you know, and I was the one pushing it. So like, yeah, you oh, we like what you guys did, but not you. So uh, luckily, I mean, that was, uh, you know, the opposite of the Sundance thing. That was that full, hey, here's, you know, reality check across <laughs> your face. And I couldn't, I, the only time ever in my life that I could honestly say I couldn't get out of bed for like two days uh, was when that happened. And um, one of the producers, you know, someone gave me an idea and said, it just said, look, you've never backed away from something like this, you know, find a way to do it and change their mind. And, you know, it was one of those like, God damn it, they're right. So uh, one of the producers thankfully put up money, uh, much more in the Sleepy Hollow trailer, to be honest, as things went up, I guess, in 10 years or whatever. Uh, and uh, we made a trailer for Grave Dancers. And sure enough, that Fox said, you know what? We love it. He can do it. And, and it got greenlit. And then Maverick told us they didn't have the money and that all fell <laughs> And, uh, but because I had that trailer, uh, I was able to use it as a sales tool and we were able to set it up at a company called Code Entertainment and they made it for a fraction of what we wanted to. We wanted to make it for $10 million or 15. We made it for two, but we made it. So that so that, that's one case where making the, the trailer you know, was beneficial. Uh, the one where I did for Overkill, I just wanted to make something. I think at the time I was inspired by Crank 2, just the idea of like multi-camera, mm-hmm. super kinetic. And I kind of wanted to do my spin on uh, The Running Man, uh, which is like, uh, what you know, instead of like one killer, it was gangs of, of 80s slashers. So you had your, your, you know, kind of motel hell pig brother guys, and you had your cropsy wood <laughs> killers, and you had to do different levels. And ultimately, it's, it's squid games, you know, it's another one of those. Here's the thing, the difference between because uh, I just had another one, uh, uh, Night in Soho was was another one, a script I'd just written, not not the thing, but a, a similar storyline. And then I saw Night in Soho, I was like, oh, it's a lot like that. <laughs> uh, but th- th- those are the crushing because it's your idea and and it's see deflated. The thing about Overkill, it was never original. It was never an original idea. You know, the idea of a blood sport of a person trying to, to survive several levels 
you know, that's that's Running Man, that's the video game Manhunt, that's there is a Fangoria movie called Slashers, that's uh, the the Robert Rodriguez uh, Predators. You know, it's like that that kind of, uh, the Hunted with Stone Cold Steve Austin. I mean, you can go on and on and on. It's just mm-hmm. however you you do yeah. it, but but you know, it's a fun thing. So when when that kind of didn't happen, when you see it happen in Squid Game or now Edgar Wright's doing Running Man. You know, that's fair. <laughs> it's like, like it wasn't, wasn't the most original idea in the first place. So I, I can let that one go pretty easily. So I don't think that'll probably ever happen just because it wasn't that original in the first place. And there's lots of stuff coming uh, that, that's like it. So, you know, so. <laughs> Would have been fun. The 80s slasher is, I think, the one thing that made it different than all the others, though. So obviously it was crazy bloody and it was a comedy uh but uh but yeah oh well and, and you never know i mean you know mm-hmm. someone approached that me recently about that if i'd be interested in doing it and i'm like not not really but i mean i have a bunch of other <laughs> stuff i'd like to make you know uh, so, so. Well, we, we, one, one more last one i'm sorry to bring sure, all these yeah. up to you okay. uh there was i saw like an interview you were up for like toolbox murders too was that the one like right i know eventually it was made but it was- yes uh boy you good good homework there uh that that, that is another movie that, <laughs> that never Steve got made does. that i didn't do oh i'm just trying to think what the fuck my take on toolbox murders 2 was i, I don't remember it I, okay so my friends adam Girash and jace anderson wrote toolbox murders uh and they did a, a wonderful film with toby hooper uh shot by the same dp who did uh the the last jedi fyi and knives out oh wow <laughs> yes, really? yes no one knows that the knives out and toolbox wow. murders were shot by the by the same thing much like also i want to well I'll, I'll get to that in a second actually i'll come around this way uh so then they want to do toolbox murders too i was attached to it i for the life of me don't remember what we were planning to do with it. I'm sure there was a take. I'm sure there was something I was excited about that was like, yeah, coffin baby does, you know, uh, you know, I always like mashups. I always like, like when slashers fight other slashers that, that gives me giggles. I don't know. Uh, so I'm sure it was something like that, but, but I, I, uh, I, I don't, uh, I don't know what happened. Uh, eventually Dean Jones, who was my makeup artist in the convent ended up directing it just to bring it all full circle with Bruce Dern. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, which I couldn't believe because Bruce Dern's very next movie after Toolbox Murders 2 was Nebraska. <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> which he won an Acad- or you know nominated for academy award for and won the palm dior so just that crazy life is is weird and you know and obviously just to come around bruce's doc bruce's life is very up and down too you know where it's like can't get can't get stuff and then yeah then nebraska happened and that changed my life you know so so anyway wow. so that's all i remember on toolbox i mean i've pitched lots of things that you know, never. I remember pitching. I, I know what you did last summer too. Uh, you know, I've definitely pitched lots of shit that got made that just did not get made by me. But that's just you know, <laughs> that's just wow, life, what a uh, trip. This this fine industry. I mean, <laughs> the fact that you started at twenty two that alone mm-hmm. is going to get you a crazy up and down career for sure. I mean, I'll, I'll <laughs> say this. It's the only, it's the only thing that kind of, cause you know, when you're in your forties, people love to remind you via meme or whatever that, that you're, you're, you're old. You know, I just saw a meme the other day that said like, if you used to play with these toys and it was like a Coleco vision, like a, <laughs> like a Merlin and it's all shit that I had when I was a kid. And like, don't yeah. forget to take your ibuprofen for your back. And I'm like, I will kick your fucking ass junior. <laughs> like, what are you, I don't need no, 
no fucking ibuprofen, man. Uh, so I, I will say that is a, mm-hmm. the nice thing about starting young is that although I'm probably kidding myself, I still feel young, uh, mm-hmm. even though I've been doing it for 20 years. So, you know, so that that is very much I, I do think that is a benefit of of starting out as early as you can. It's like you, you get extra time to fuck around and fuck <laughs> up. Uh, so, <laughs> well, I can't wait to find out what veteran screen legend you befriend at uh, IHOP next. <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 who's next uh yeah, yeah. <laughs> who's after yeah. Bruce Dern? all right i don't know uh, i don't know but uh, well, i don't know got got some exciting stuff coming up i uh, got a new anthology coming up i can't fully talk about it but there is kind of a tales of halloween cousin let's call it nice. uh not halloween related so uh but another anthology coming and then uh yeah and then hopefully some other fun things uh but working on a, a very exciting uh gory zombie type movie i won't say much about it that i'm just hoping happens because if it does that, that i don't know that that one's going to be very cool because it is uh i feel I've, I've been told my entire life that horror comedies don't sell and nobody likes my gory stupid shit and then someone might be giving me a fair amount of money to make some gory stupid shit and i'm like yes this will be a victory <laughs> so so we'll see but i i'm i'm optimistic at at the moment uh that, that I, i'm definitely excited about some stuff that, that i'm working on so uh, mm-hmm. And where can people find you on social media and online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, which I don't use that much, uh, but that's at Madman Mendez and uh, Instagram at Madman Mendez. Uh, Madman Mendez, sorry. Uh, and uh, I feel uh, my Instagram stories is kind of my main social media presence, which I don't think a lot of people know about it. So I kind of like it. I feel I have my own kind of private audience uh, that I, I feel <laughs> I feel I can. Great what about that. YouTube? Do you have, do you feel you have enough of a channel or is it just kind of the random videos? Kind of random there? videos okay. I, I put up there. I mean, I have a YouTube channel, but honestly that, that never kind of blew up for me. I just kind of like, that's just where I put stuff or whatever. It's really kind of the Instagram things is where that's the social, the most enjoyment I get from yeah. my social media <laughs> is, is doing those. So. Uh, so you can also find us on Instagram at best movies, never made and on Twitter at never made film. Uh, a very thank you so much, Mike, for joining us. This was yeah, a nice, man. long uh, and in-depth conversation. Mm-hmm. I love these deep dives. I was, I'm sure, careers. it was probably something a little different than than what you guys usually do. I would think. Yeah, we you know usually we focus more on specific projects, but I think uh, you know you have a well. I wouldn't even say it's that unique. I think it's a unique career that you don't hear as much about. I think sure. there is lots of people who wind up with your kind of career. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know. I, I just think it's doing so many different things at such different ages and all the different turns and ups and downs and random opportunities. Uh, I, mean, I think it's pretty all wonderful. All I can say is, is I'm so thankful to still be here. That's, that's, that's all yeah. I can say <laughs> at the end of the day. I'll, I'll give you one last little pearl of wisdom that was given to me by a, a, a great man, I think we'll all agree, uh, Mr. Wes Craven, uh, that really kind of you know, again, we beat ourselves up and we, you know, we, we think about how we're not doing the things we want to do, but Wes Craven was telling, we, we interviewed him once for this amazing, uh, op, this wonderful opportunity, this thing, this documentary called Masters of Horror we did for Showtime many, many years ago before the, before the anthology show. And, uh, he t- was telling us about, you know, about like, look, I mean, I got beat up most of my career. You know, it's like I was called a, a schlockmeister and a hack every time. You know, I never get good reviews. The, the industry never took me seriously. 
but if you just hang on long enough <laughs> yeah. and you just keep doing it, suddenly they start calling you master of horror. So, uh, you know, I still have a long way to catch up before someone like Wes Craven, but, but, you know, but it is, but it is something that we all can learn from about the power of endurance endurance and the power of just hanging in there. So. I was just, it's a, it's a career that started with Mario Van Peebles in a Mexican restaurant and <laughs> went all the way up to Bruce Dern at an IHOP. So. <laughs> that is true. That is true. So uh, Again, I'll remind people, you should check out the Electric Now app, free app. You can watch movies and TV shows and more important video from our podcasts and all the podcasts here on the Electric Surge Network. We'd like to thank everyone at our network, including Bill Ritter and our producers, Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin. Until next time, this is Josh Miller and Steven Scarlatta saying we won't see you at the movies. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.